You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Tonight's going to be another one of the Salamander Series episodes, and I've got really one of my most commonly requested guests, uh, Nick Stacy. You may remember Nick from, gosh, I can't even remember which episode it was. It was it was a way back, one of the first couple episodes I put out, and we talked about Nick's project with uh, with uh, breeding Adelopus. He now is breeding. He's now breeding two different species of Adelopus. And uh, we're going to kind of recap some of that. And uh, we're also going to focus a lot on the green salamander work that he's been doing. It's, uh, I believe the species name is, uh, I think it's Aeneides Aeneas. And uh, we're going to talk about that. He's been, he's successfully bred that species, which is pretty amazing. And he's got a whole bunch of other stuff going on that I really can't wait to get into. But uh, first, of course, you know, thanks for the five-star reviews, everyone on Apple Podcasts. It's a great way to support the show. Uh, another great way to support the show, of course, is to become a patron on Patreon. If you're interested in becoming a patron, I have a few different tiers. I have one that's as low as a dollar a month, and I have the $5 a month tier, which is the most popular. $5 tier gets you a shout out at the beginning of an upcoming episode, which is pretty cool. And I'm also a uh, an affiliate now with In Situ Ecosystems. So if you're interested in getting a really good quality vivarium, as a listener, you get a 10% discount just by following the link in the description. And other than that, housekeeping aside, uh, Nick, it's really great to have you back. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing good. I'm actually super excited to be back, too. I remember uh, last time you said you were probably going to reach out again. Um, it's, I think it's been actually just close to a year now. So a, a lot has changed. Um, all for the good, too. It's been actually really nice down here in South Texas. Yeah, I know it's with COVID and everything happening, it got a little bit um, out of control. And I mean, you and I had texted back and forth, I think like maybe a couple of months ago. And I know you got tied up. Look, we're all busy people. And I know you got a lot of work going on, excuse me, uh, with your new uh, endeavor, which is Fragile uh, Fragile Planet Wildlife Park. Now you went from being Fragile Planet Wildlife Center to Wildlife Park. Well, first, let's let's get caught up a little bit. It's been a while. It's, It's been over a year and a half, I think, since we talked Tell us about how much you've expanded because you've got a, a legit amazing zoo that's going on right now. You want to catch everybody up on that? So I remember last time I was still building a house. Um, things have changed and we've talked to a lot of different people and facilities and we reevaluated things. And instead of building from ground up from scratch, we did go ahead and after we finished the house, we sold out on that project. Um, and we ended up buying a house and a property that had already has some um, structure to it. It's got a, a warehouse for us and some pavilions we can use for education presentations on site. Um, we have officially opened to public. Uh, our federal permits do allow on-site visits and exhibition of mammals, um, soon to be birds. That's a big new change for all across the nation. Um, so that's that's new. That's exciting. Um, and it's definitely been a big change um, from being just myself. We now have a handful of employees, too. So there's multiple people that come to my room um, with the amphibians. So that's that's, I think, the, the biggest change overall is the different people in my room. What's it like managing such a big operation now? It's, it's stressful. Um, I, I really do miss working for other people. The responsibility load is so much less, Um, but I also love it in the same time. um, It's a learning experience every turn of the corner. So there's that. Uh, It's not always good. We got a brand new tractor this year and the first week we got it, we popped a tire. So we had to wait for a new tire to come in. So that was incredibly frustrating. Uh, 
The pandemic, of course, I know it affected everybody. We relied solely on outreach programs. Um, outreach programs, there we go. So it's been nice to be able to have small groups come to us. Um, we do little tours, small presentations, um, and we still go to schools whenever we're able to. Um, and this year we started something that's really cool. We actually do nationwide free education programs. Um, if a school can gather upwards of 300 kids together, safely of course, um, whether it be outdoors, indoors, we do travel to them with a small group of animals. Very simple things. We bring like a bearded dragon, a turtle or a tortoise, a small crocodile and one of our owls. Um, and we're able to do photos with the kids like that. Um, and we don't charge the school anything, of course. So that's been a, a big aspect for us down locally. The free programs down here are a real big incentive for all the schools, uh, especially after the pandemic as well. It's, it's affected everybody. And you, you said before when we were talking off air, you said that you're actually taking in some surrendered animals as well? Yes, actually. Um, even before we were open to public, um, we've always opened our doors to confiscations and relinquishes. Um, just this last week, we had someone bring us a Russian tortoise. Um, being on the border, people move across and they are not able to take their non-domestic pets across the border without certain paperwork. Um, that's not very easy to get and it's impossible to get for some animals like CITES, one listed species. Um, a pet is not a reason to move that animal across the border. Only a true conservation initiative what allows those animals um, in captivity to move across borders legally. Um, so. We've gotten things like ball pythons, exotic fish, turtles, and all kinds of things. Um, it's not very common, and, and it's all out of pocket. Sometimes the animals do get sent back to the owners if it's not like a, a proper confiscation situation. Uh, um, sometimes the animals are mis misidentified, if that makes sense. Um, we've had albino Burmese confiscated in New York from years ago and ended up being a red-tailed boa. And I mean, as soon as they handed me that snake, I'm like, oh, this needs to go right back to its owner. It's the wrong species. It's just a, a big yellow snake. It's not an albino Burmese. It's an albino boa. They're perfectly able to be owned. That's funny because as a native of New Yorker, I know exactly what you're, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, the local enforcement aren't always up to par on being educated to what exactly every single thing is. Um, We've also helped the local accredited facility down here, Gladys Porter Zoo. Um, they've had a, a large number of animals get on like the larger confiscations, things that we can't handle. Um, and I've gone and identified some, some of the amphibians for them um, that they were just kind of stumped at what they were. So, and that was really cool to be able to go and do that. Um, but they also do not have a, an amphibian specialist on staff currently. Um, Gladys Porter Zoo is still actively looking for an amphibian keeper. So if y'all with good resumes out there want to work at a local accredited zoo down by me, feel free to uh, contact their curator there or check the job postings out there. All right, I'm I'm going to pack up and I'm going to move down there now. No, no, I'm just kidding. That would be an awesome job. <laughs> it's a that lovely would be great. Area down here, we're the third most tropical place in the USA. Yeah, it stinks up here in New York. It's it's. I mean, by the time this episode comes out, it'll be later, but right around now, it's about the end of March when we're recording this, and it is freezing. It was like 24 degrees yesterday. It's 88 right now, but it was 94 earlier this afternoon. Yeah, that I could do without. I could do without the 90s. But yeah. just before to back up, you mentioned crossing borders. You're talking about international borders between the U.S. and Mexico, right? Correct. Yep. I'm about 25 minutes right at the border. 
Okay, the only reason I asked was because we were, there was this whole Lacey Act amendments going on in the United States uh, Congress. So when you said that, I was like, wait a minute, did, did something pass that I don't know about going, moving animals between states? Um, no, as right now, things are just being pushed. Nothing's passed, thankfully. All right, good, good. Because I know a lot of zoos are, have taken issues with that as well. Yes, yep. It'll, it'll be a place in the, in the USA. Yeah. I mean, we can touch about the, on that a little bit later too, but I, I want to kind of get into some of the amphibian projects you have. I and mean, I really want to really talk about the green salamander, but first of all, you have basically like an amphibian lab, right, on your facility that you focus kind of... You, you... I have a 20 by 25 converted garage. So I upped the insulation. Um, I waterproofed the base of it in case there's any floods and stuff like that. It doesn't ruin the walls, if that makes sense. Um, and I put a window unit on a generator for emergencies. So if my house um, AC goes out or something like that, I, my room is still self-sufficient and stable. It'll kick on as soon as the uh, the house turns off, if that makes sense. So it's not a true lab per se. Um, it's just like what they call it for the tours, if that makes sense. So um, I do have a couple turtle species in there and some New Caledonia geckos that like the little cooler temperatures compared to the warm room too. That's amazing. Yeah, maybe lab was a, was a poor choice of words. Yeah, it's it here because it's got all the cool lights and the racks and it's real sciencey looking in there and all the kids their eyes get real wide when they walk into the room in there um but i it isn't technically a, a real lab um i don't have like a, a biosecure room um there's toads that hang outside the front door i don't go playing with them before i go playing with my frogs in the room um but it's just a it's my house essentially right now i've just kind of made it more um, user-friendly for groups of people to come through on one half. That's pretty cool. Which, How many different species of amphibians are you working with presently? I would have to go check the list right now, but I want to say it's at like 40 plus. Really? That many? R- roughly, yep, yep. I've, I've got some good diversity, 35 to 40-ish. My my significant other does all of the I would call it statistics, all the numbers and the the paperwork and everything, and files my notes and stuff like that. I kind of just hand it to him. I am not the most organized person myself. Welcome to the club. Neither am I. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm somewhat of a space cadet at times. I'm scurrying around, a jack of all trades. Uh, I could be in the middle of a water change, and I'll get radioed or called over to go drop a fence post or climb up on the roof and fix something somewhere else or who knows what yeah it's just it's just part of the experience so last time we talked we had talked about atelopus and you were working with i think uh, which which species of atelopus did you start out with i'm still working with the two species but i'm now breeding both um the atelopus balios from wakiri down in ecuador and a wild caught species from suriname that comes in um to a lot of the wholesalers and stuff seasonally um, the purple Adelopus, it comes in labeled as Adelopus barbatonii. Uh, I may be saying that wrong, barbatony. I, I didn't take any formal schooling on languages, so I don't know how to speak Latin, if that makes sense. It's okay. I always tell people, I mean, it's funny because people get into arguments over scientific names. Tomato, and, tomato, Oklahoma. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the fact of the matter is it's, it's I, I very rarely hear people use scientific names in oral conversation i see them more in written but um in, 
even Adelopis. It could be Atelopis or Adelopis. I hear both regularly. I know. I've heard both. And to be honest, I kind of, I mean, anybody who listens to the show knows, like, I kind of amend my pronunciation based on whoever the guest is, but I guess all is fair. So, I mean, just to put it out there, a lot of people got really took a lot of information or a lot of input from that episode where we discussed your breeding project for Adelopis. Can you just kind of walk anybody who didn't make that episode or wasn't able to check out that episode, kind of just walk us through how you were able to figure out how to breed them so successfully? Yeah, no problem. So I actually had a ton of people reach out to me from listening to it too, just asking more questions and wanting to see photos from everything and stuff too. And just as now I want to tell everybody, feel free to reach out. It may take a little while for me to message back, especially if you get stuck in one of the other folders. I hate those things. Um, but for the most part, there's for the first couple years, um, I didn't really attempt any breeding. It was just monitoring and maintaining the adults and uh, just playing with parameters and seeing what they liked and did good with. Um, and networking, I contacted as many people um, from over the years that I could find. I messaged old accounts on Dendro board and all the old frog forms and stuff like that to try to get a people, get a hold of people that I had seen that had kept them or attempted to breed them. And honestly, a lot of it I've learned from other people's failures um, or their attempts that did not succeed completely. Um, and kind of just figuring out what they did and not doing that and kind of just doing what else there was left. And it, it worked out great. Um, a lot of help to some of the keepers that work with the Panamanian golden frogs. Um, I got to meet Vicky Poole from up over at Fort Worth at one of the conferences for ZAA, the Zoological Association of America. Um, they're similar to AZA, the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. Um, those are the only two formal accreditation standards currently in the USA that are accepted by Fish and Wildlife. So that was super cool to meet her. She's the Adelopis queen. Um, she was part of the initial project that started working with Adelopis and zoos in the United States. So um, a lot of her research papers helped, especially with water quality. Um, I had a lot of experience working with corals, um, so I contribute that to it as well. Um, the Adelopis are like the sensitive corals with the water parameters. Um, but I had no baseline of what those water parameters were. Um, so finding some of her papers were extremely beneficial. Um, and then from there, just seeing the names on that research paper and looking up other people's papers from different countries of origin that Adelopis live in and seeing those water parameters in those papers and such like that. Um, but until then, like there's such little information out there on that genus of Adelopis besides their biology. Um, nothing really on the reproduction um, or them, their ecology in the wild. Um, majority of it is studied on their poisons and stuff like that or their gene flow. I remember seeing them periodically on price lists in the early to mid 2000s and then a couple of times. Way back when, yeah. yeah, it was very, very sporadic. And I remember seeing them and thinking, wow, this is incredible. But they never really got the hobby appeal or the, the hobby popularity that dar frogs did i mean the the way it always struck me with with your approach was my opinion and this is just my my opinion what i kind of took away from it was that i feel like a lot of people were sort of trying to keep them and breed them the same way that you would do dart frogs focusing on more of a terrestrial approach to it and then i saw a lot of small pockets of water yeah um, yeah like pocket breed them, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
or a lot of heavy tannins and leaf litter and debris and stuff like that. But there, a lot of the streams are very high flow and clean, fresh, clear water. Yeah, that was what I thought was interesting was the fact that you sort of like f- flip that dynamic around. And instead of thinking about them the way you would think about a dart frog, you think about them the way you'd think about a more, uh, I guess, a, well, a more aquatic species or something that's really more dependent on flowing water. Yeah. So when you take like a, a water bottle and you dip it out of that tank and you pick it up and you stick it next to a water bottle that's not been opened, you really can't tell them apart with the exception of the cat being off of it. The water is so clear and so clean. What about the temperature? What what temperature are you keeping that water at? Between 72 and 74 for these two species is what I'm keeping at. Anything a little lower um, and they kind of grow slow and they don't, they're not like robust growing if that makes sense and then anything hotter and the water has trouble holding the proper oxygen amount and the tadpoles just seem oxygen starved even with extra air pumps and extra flow Um, cold water holds extra oxygen molecules just because the way the molecules are moving so much slower how do you measure the oxygen the oxygen content in the water So I borrowed a dissolved oxygen meter um, from a friend. I do not own one myself, um, but I kind of like got a feel for high, low range measurements and what it looks like, what it feels like, um, and like what the parameters are that allow it to be consistent, if that makes sense. So I've not had to rely on one for the last little while for myself. I only had one for four to six months um, initially with the first batch. What about the flow? Is there a certain flow rate that goes through the tank that when i first put the tadpoles in just until they're like aware of their surroundings and stuff i do have it on a little bit slower flow um i've got a canister filter and two power heads for flow um the canister filter is just a cheap sun sun uv filter from ebay amazon um they're real cheap and easy to replace they've got a they just polish the water real well. and They've got a UV filter to kill any excess bacteria and algae and stuff like that in the water column. And then the two power heads I use are very top of the line, marine style um, saltwater power heads. They're called uh, Vortec MP40s. Um, and they're kind of, there's two pieces to them. One goes inside the tank and one goes outside the tank. They're magnets and they, they're electromagnets, magnets, so they spin. Um, and they're large enough that if tadpoles go through it, they just blow through it and they're not chopped up or blended like a boat prop. But for the most part, um, the tadpoles, they're so adapted to the high flow streams that they suction cup in place and kind of just scoot around with their oral disc that they don't even get affected by the high flow. I keep those two power heads on about 50 to 75% for the majority of the time. And then as soon as they get all four legs and they start to lose their oral discs, I lower the flow just because they have a hard time climbing out of my smooth surface sides. Um, The straight up and down vertical walls are an unnaturally, um, an an unnatural obstacle that they come across. So they can drown real easy if they're not able to climb out of the water properly. In the wild, they crawl out of a beach-like access on the water banks. They don't have a, a tank wall to deal with, if that makes sense. Yeah, and they're really tiny when they emerge from the water, right? About two to three millimeters. Incredibly tiny. Yeah, I remember seeing the pictures that you first put up, and I just remember thinking, I was like, wow, these things are like yep. minuscule. Fresh out of water, 
adult springtails are too large. Um, the first go around, I did not have enough springtails to supplement the juvenile springtails by dumping them all in there and stuff like that, if that makes sense. So I did culture soil and wood mites. I just took like a bunch of peat and stuff like that and some wood bits and mixed it up in containers and they just naturally showed up and there was no, nothing else living in there. So they boom and populated and I fed off those. Now I have amassed enough springtail cultures that I can cycle through them solely and have been raising these last couple batches on only springtails. Um, but the first few weeks out of water, adult springtails of the common white springtail species are a little too big. That's interesting that they're so small. I, I mean, just... One of the things, I mean, when I found out that you did this, my mind was completely blown. I mean, to your knowledge, is there anybody else in the U.S. that's breeding these things like you? Nope, nope. So out of everything, every single thing I found, um, there's only been one single other private person ever that had any success. Um, and he had just a, a couple, two or three metamorphosized out of water. And he wasn't really sure what he was doing wrong or right or anything. He just got them to come out of the water. Um, and he did it on a real small scale. I had the safety net of a large volume of water and a large space for parameters to change slow. Um, and that was a little bit of saltwater base knowledge there. Nothing good happens fast in saltwater. So having a large volume is a safety net. So changes happen slower. Um, so he did say he had an issue where um, like there's something changed and he had a little bit of a, like a, a loss on him. And uh, the spindly leg syndrome was a little bit of an issue for past breedings for him as well, too. Um, out of all of mine, I've had just a couple that have had it, and it's not even necessarily been true spindly leg. They've just, like, been completely missing one back leg or a, a front arm. But the other has been nice and strong. So that's just a, a little bit of deformities in the hundreds of individuals climbing up water. Yeah, considering how many tadpoles they actually produce, it's, I mean... And there are... A bunch of universities um, that are able to go down and wild collect for their projects and stuff like that. But on their research permits and stipulations, they can't distribute them outside of their programs unless they're in specimen jars um, for like uh, museum holotypes and stuff like that. Um, so those ones don't ever hit the trade. But um, places like Manchester Museum in uh, overseas, they're breeding the Costa Rican Adelopis varius now which is super cool. Our U.S. zoos don't have that here. Do you think we'll have them at some point in the future? I, I'm sure um, the, the accredited zoos meet the criteria to move them between countries um, because they are CITES-1 and ESA listed here in our country. Um, but we wouldn't be able to get them privately in the United States ourselves. Those will be within accredited institutions only. And even if I ever get accredited by ZAA, um, I don't think I would meet the criteria for them either. That has to do with country of origin, not anything to do with our country. I gotcha. I gotcha. Well, I mean, we, we've got a lot to be happy with so far. I mean, you've got two species here, which is pretty cool. And, and some things, like even species we have, for example, uh, the Costa Rican uh, and the Nicaraguan glass frogs, the granulosas. The Cochranella granulosa, the granular glass frogs. Oh, yeah. Uh, the ones the accredited zoos have, like California Academy of Science, 
they cannot send them to even another accredited zoo. It's a sole institution permit stipulation for them. And it was for their project. So they can maintain a group for themselves, but they can't distribute them anywhere else. But we have them privately. Yeah, that's a whole other yep. whole other whole other ball of wax. So oh, something else too, um, that I've had a couple other people message me about. Um, with the purple toads, the Adelopis barbatonii, um, I had the black and white ones and the purple ones, the, the adults that were uh, sent to me to reproduce. Um, and they have a little bit of different calls. Um, come to find out, they do have the same calls. It was territorial calls versus mating calls. So it was males bickering between each other versus males calling for females at the stream. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I wasn't really sure about that, the, the differences between the purple and the black and white. I, I mean, to be honest, I don't really don't know too much about Adelopus at all. But So multiple of my spawns now, three of them that have grown up enough to get their color, one third of the population has been black and white. The other two thirds has been the standard purple. Some are dull and some are very, very, very vibrant and bright. So is that just a natural, naturally occurring morph? It'd be just a... Uh, just a just a phenotype is what I would call it. Yeah, I mean I'm looking at I'm looking at a comparison here between the two and it's it's pretty wild actually how yeah. how different they look. But there's still similarities between them. They've got uh pink very pink like bellies between each other still. Yeah, they're both 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 variants are pretty stunning. Yes. And as of right now, um, at cruising at just a little bit over one year old, um, they are starting to sex out. So the first couple I've caught in Amplexus now and uh, a couple of males have started calling. I've not seen any signs of eggs developing in any of them yet or anything. But a couple of people from the very first batch that I sold um, from the very first ones that climbed out of water, I didn't even hold any of those back for myself. Um, I kind of just got them into as many, as many good hobbyists' hands as I could possible and zoos, aquariums. Um, I just kind of got them out there. Uh, some of those have plumped up this past spring, but I don't think anybody's attempted breeding. I think they want to let them get another season of age on them. I've seen a few pictures here and there, and it's uh, they, they do look they look pretty good. They're, they've got pretty good body condition. Yeah, a couple a, of people a, I know a, have them. Uh, a bunch of people actually um, have a, a couple real good tanks that are making me jealous. So I don't have any really big tanks right now. My my biggest tank is for my magnificent tree frogs. Um, and that's a two foot by two foot by six foot long tank. And it's actually a, a big snake tank with sliding glass. So it just works really good for them. Well, while we're on tanks, I, I want to switch gear and I want to get to the main topic of tonight which is the green salamander i, I remember seeing cool. on, on instagram you'd created this really really beautiful like rocky edge with with moss i mean it's it's an incredible vivarium but yes my little mossy rock cut yeah well before we get into all that why don't you start us off with like why choose to work with this species and how did you get involved with them in the first place so I've always liked salamanders and newts, just like I've liked uh, other amphibians and frogs and toads and such. Um, so I've, I've always wanted to get into them. It's much more limited choices um, compared to the frog hobby. 
um, very more tight niche too, um, and a lot more legalities. Uh, there's a, a ban that went into effect that kind of cut off the trade from a, a ton of species. 200 plus species could no longer be imported into the United States um, until further notice, just forever. Um, though it is for the safety of our native diversity, um, we do have like pretty much the highest diversity of salamanders out of any other countries in the world. Um, some of our mountains over on the East Coast have more salamanders on a single mountainside than entire countries do. So we must protect our native animals, of course. Um, in my mind, I see both sides. I see the sadness and the loss of the trade and hobby, um, how it affects us. But I also see the preservation of what was here before us, too. So I kind of just always liked the green salamanders. Um, I've lived over on the East Coast a few times and I've herped all over the place. Never been lucky enough to find one in the wild, um, but I was lucky enough to find Tim Herman from Indoor Ecosystems. Um, and he did all the groundwork and got the state permits to collect them from a state. And he's done phenomenal work breeding them. He's got multiple generations captive bred now and he's offered them for sale to the general public and to zoos and aquariums across the USA. Um, so it's kind of just, Seeing that offering there, I jumped. Um, you don't ever see a native species of salamander captive bred like that. Um, all of the tiger salamanders, all of the spotted salamanders, and all the little eastern newts you see everywhere, 99% of those are all wild-caught animals. Um, in my mind, it's much better to go collect it yourself um, on a state permit than turning around and supporting these wholesale companies that go mass take them out. Um, and then they sit in these unknown situations, unknown care, large groups and unsanitary conditions at times um, versus just you doing it yourself correctly right off the bat. Um, so seeing a hobbyist do all this groundwork and stuff like that, it felt great to support him um, and felt great to get some really cool captive bred salamanders. It's encouraging to see people start to work with. I don't want to say neglected species per se, but species that really haven't gotten much attention other than just being wild caught, like you said. Yeah, absolutely. So what's your goal with them? Are you are you just captive breeding them just as a kind of a private project or do you have a greater goal with them? Initially, it was I literally just got them to have them because I liked them. Um, my significant other actually was like, peeving and asking questions because I had showed them him a bunch and he got them for me for my birthday. Um, so I didn't expect them. So I kind of had to build that tank real, real, real fast. And it's actually why it's so simple. And I'm actually extremely pleased on how well it's turned out for how simple it is too. Um, and I've kind of started basing a lot of my tanks off of it. They don't have to be super elaborate to work out. They can be extremely simple and be perfect as is. And clearly you know, I didn't even mean to breed. Um, one day I just looked in and I saw one of the females had eggs in them. And then periodically, as the others came out, all females had eggs in them. Um, I've got one male, three females. Um, and then just one day randomly, there was a successful deposit of eggs in one of the little caves. Um, I used a lot of photos from herpers. Um, people that go out and look for them in the wild, they don't collect them or anything like that. They just take photos of them and stuff like that, how they find them um, in situ or in situation. And I used a lot of those photos to base how I did the build off um, and a lot of the nooks and crannies and the rocks types even and the mosses as well. So this is the second year now that I've bred them. 
And the previous year, we had a, a real big bad storm in the winter come and it knocked out power. And it took me most of the day to get my generator going. So my house got down into the 50s. Um, I think that was a big trigger for them the first year. And then this year, it's been stable temperatures all year and they bred for me. So I'm assuming light cycles also have something to do with it. But I wasn't really doing anything on purpose to breed them. It just worked out for me. It's funny because I'm looking at my notes here about, I mean, it's it's nothing really that detailed, but I guess just about kind of the life history of the species. And it's interesting because there's all these little caveats about how they they hibernate and then there's all these different environmentals. It's just, it's really cool that you were able to just get them to reproduce without any real significant amount of cycling or anything. Yep. So I was excited. Um, and the plethamodonids and the little salamanders, especially the anides or anides, I don't know how to say that word either. Um, they're often incredibly hard to reproduce in captivity. Um, very few people have done it. Tim was saying I'm one of just a handful of people globally that have bred the green salamanders like that too. So it's just, and part of it is not many people have worked with them. They are protected in the majority of all of their range. Um, so he did have to get special state permits to do the initial collection to work with them too. Um, that I'm aware of. You set the vivarium up in a way that reflects their natural habitat. I mean, for anybody who's not familiar, because I mean, I'm not a huge salamander person, but they live in these rocky outcroppings, right? So they're kind of I hate the word. I hate to use the term semi-arboreal, but they're they're really more a comp, uh, they're really more accustomed to like a vertical type of setup yeah, rather than I, horizontal. I actually consider them an arboreal salamander. Um, some of the research papers out there they've been found well over twenty-five feet up in trees, um, as long as it's got the proper humidity levels, especially um, night and day, the twilight period uh, where crepuscular animals are real active, it gets misty, um, especially when the dew point settles. So the habitat that's suitable for them um, can be the treetops right outside the rock cut. So it can be dozens of feet off the ground, um, but just, just off the rock cut, if that makes sense. And they're able to traverse it from ground up or whether it be launching from the rocks onto it. Because um, mine, the adults, they'll slap themselves a good 15 inches across from the back wall all the way to the front glass um and they kind of just like kick their tail and flip like a big old springtail i'm just picturing i mean you're probably too young to remember this but there was this thing called wacky wall walkers used to get them in a cereal box in the 80s and it was this like sticky octopus thing and you'd just throw it at the wall and it would kind of like fall down i don't know that's I the, think yeah that's the nearest that's the closest i'm sorry it's a bad example but just the way that was the first thing that came into my head when you mentioned that. that like i could see them in the wild falling from great heights because they miss their landing yeah yeah these little animals don't have the same kind of terminal velocities us we do yeah i've no i've noticed that i've had when i was younger i had a some species of fire belly newt and it, it you know i was i was a kid it fell out of my hand onto the floor and i remember thinking to myself if I had fallen from like 40 feet, I would have been cracked open like an egg and this thing is totally fine. But I mean, obviously don't drop your animals. I was a kid, but well, I'm curious about the life cycle. And I mean, first off, do you have any idea how old the adults were when you got them? I mean, do you know if there's any age that they become sexually mature at? Between three and six months. I'll have to look again. I believe that's what Tim said. Um, I asked him a million questions about him and stuff when I got them. Um, so it, it took them roughly two years or so in my care before they bred. 
And do they have direct development? They do. They are direct developers. Um, so uh, the females, they develop the eggs inside their body. Um, once they lay them, they glue them up under the caves um, or to the side of a, a hard surface. Um, they, I've not seen them do it to wood myself. They always find like a nice, good rock surface to adhese, adhese like to adhere it to. Um, and it's kind of like a cement. Um, whenever they all hatched, I took a pair of tweezers and I tried to pull out the goo. Um, and the goo came out, but the little spot where the goo was stuck to the egg, that was real stuck on there. It was like a lichen almost. It was kind of like cemented on there. Um, so, and it took... I'll have to look at my notes again and my photos. They've all got timestamps on them. Um, modern technology nowadays, it's its a blessing having the timestamps and everything like that. So if I forget to write something down, I can double back on a picture and, and get at least a good close reference to it. I just figured that out last month, actually, <laughs> that you could do that. I had no yeah, idea. Yep. Yes, yep. Um, you got to be careful with it too. A lot of people that go find these animals in the wild and post their pictures, there's accident, like accidental metadata encrypted to the picture and poachers know how to look for that stuff. Um, so it's, you can be dangerous posting the wrong pictures online if you haven't scrubbed that information off of it. Yeah. That's another funny dynamic because I, I for, in the past couple of years, it's been this big, like I naturalist push where people, they find animals in, in, in the wild and then they, I guess, ping the location and, but it makes it perfect for poachers to find them. So. Yep. And for like threatened and endangered or vulnerable animals, I'm pretty sure it like automatically obscures it. But say you find multiple animals from one area and you have them all there, it's only going to be obscured so much. You can still get it narrowed down. So it's not, not a perfect situation either having it obscured. I'm just picturing like the eye poacher act apt, which is like, uh, you know, people using the same data to, to poach. That's crazy. A cool pool of information and data. That's like citizen science, like essentially. It's a shame. It's, it's, um, it's, it's sad how something like that negative can really do just do such yeah. a number on something that's otherwise so positive. Yeah. Well, as far as the egg deposition sites, do they deposit in any particular spot inside the vivarium? Oh, they seek out a place that does not, actively dry out they try to find somewhere that has extremely consistent moisture levels um that way there's not like a chance of them drying out if there's a small drought if that makes sense um the little crevices that both clutches of mine have been laid um are like identical in their little micro parameters if that makes sense um the the back walls are sandstone and one side slate and there's a, a mossy cover growing over the entrance to obscure light that lets water drip during the misting periods down through it, but not directly hit the eggs, if that makes sense. How humid are you keeping the enclosure? So the enclosure itself varies. I actually let it dry out periodically. Um, I mist two or three times a week, max, except for when it's downpouring here. When it does downpour locally here with the big barometric pressure changes, I do give everybody a heavy misting as well. Um, it's just good stimulation and good time to rinse everything and get like bromeliad leaves and plants wiped down and stuff like that and the walls and glass and stuff. Um, but occasionally, you know, I'll go two or three weeks without misting heavy. I'll just, you know, miss the roots of the 
um, the ferns and stuff like that. So they don't completely die or dry out. Um, the top of the moss will start to dry out. You can kind of tell the moss closes up a little bit and it changes its shape. It doesn't look as fluffy. Um, and I'll mist again. But the insides of those caves, they don't really dry out too much. They stay pretty consistent because that shield of moss. Do you restrict the ventilation at all? So it is an exoterra tank, but I've removed the standard lid that comes with it stock. And I've slapped a piece of glass on it. I use the 2.5 millimeter um, like picture frame glass from Lowe's. It's just super cheap and super easy to get, and it's super easy to cut to the perfect size. Um, you don't have to go to a glass store. You don't have to wait on them or anything. You can literally just go right there and pick it up at that moment. Um, and I always keep a handful of them in stock. So if one breaks while I'm moving one or whatever, um, or if this year, actually, when my zookeepers were moving them, they didn't know the sides were different thicknesses than the top. So they set their hand on it and put some weight and busted a top on accident. Um, you should have seen how worried they were. I was like, no, it's fine. I got I got a spare. We took the frogs out, stripped the silicone off, and we slapped another lid on um, and problem solved. The front of it, I have a 1.5 inch vent, one and a half inch vent. Um, and that's just the standard window screen, the no see -um, so fruit flies can't get out. Um, but if you pour enough springtails in there and they climb up, they can still get out that mesh, even the real tight stuff. So no UV for them, just LED lights. Um, I don't have LEDs for them, or UVB for them, just the LEDs. What about a day-night cycle? Do you vary that? It's about 12 on, 12 off um, in the summer. And then I do cut it back in the winter quite a bit. Um, I'm not quite to our native light cycle or circadian rhythm, um, but pretty close to it. It stays on a little bit longer um, because lately I've been working throughout the day outside with the keepers, um, doing like general labor, stuff like that with the larger animals and things. And then the evenings I'm coming in and doing my amphibian stuff and things like that, cooling off. And so it's nice to have the lights on for me. Um, I've been getting a lot of headaches in the sun, so I haven't been able to use my headlamp as much. But usually I've always got a headlamp on at night inside the house doing amphibian stuff. I walk around with my flashlight constantly. It's just, yep. <laughs> just like you go in after dark and I'm checking all the little nocturnal species. I used to use a flashlight for a long time. And my significant other and a friend got me a couple of headlamps for Christmas one year. And it's been a game changer. So what are you feeding the adults? Like what, what diet, supplementation... Oh. How does a base that work? of crickets, um, just small crickets. It varies in sizes. Um, they can kind of eat anything that fits inside their head. So they can eat a pretty decent-sized cricket. Um, bean beetles are a favorite as well. Um, and isopods, like any type of isopod, they'll, they'll eat them all. Um, I haven't fed them rubber duckies or anything like that, of course, but I've got a couple of rubber duckies. But mostly just like the scabers, the real fast ones. The ones that people are wary about putting with dart frogs so they can chew on dart frogs. Um, these guys gobble them right up. Yeah, the rubber ducky isopods would be an expensive meal. Yeah, I, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> I like them a lot too. Though. Yeah, it's like decadent. What about the neonates? When you have the, the babies, what, what, are they, what do they eat? About 45 days is the youngest that I've seen one eat myself. Um, I know they're eating right now at about 30 days. I can see some food in their belly. If, if you guys go look at my Instagram or Facebook, you can see some pictures and you can zoom in and see their, their bellies. They have some food bellies right now. Um, 
but I've just been stocking the tank with springtails right now. Um, last year and the year before I had a excess of the wood and grain mites and I did toss those in there. I don't see the adults eating them. Um, but I do see the, the juveniles eating them regularly, even last year's babies. And as far as the springtails go, obviously you have a lot of animals that eat springtails. You've got the, the baby Adelopus, you've got the baby, I mean, I'm saying baby, but I guess juvenile would be the correct term. How are you managing all these animals with uh, enough of a supply of springtails to feed everything? So Jesse Isaiah, I think I'm saying his last name right. Um, he sold a bunch of springtails to lots of different people um, the last couple of years. I think he's focusing more on his schooling right now and formal education. So I think he's cut back a lot from the last post I've seen. Um, but I got a couple hundred cultures from him. I made a few hundred cultures myself. And of course, I got some from other people over the years as well. Um, I've got cultures on charcoal. I've got cultures on peat moss. I've got cultures on and most cultures on clay. Clay has been the most like the, the absolute easiest, cleanest, fastest, um, surefire method for mass culturing springtails. Um, and I've just got them in these little tiny. I want to say they're either four or eight ounce. Eight ounce. I think they're eight ounce deli cups. Um, and just I have solid lids and I open them once a week, toss a pinch of yeast, um, brewer's yeast and crushed white rice in. And occasionally like a little tiny sliver of cucumber with uh, meat and skin on it. And that's about it. It's pretty simple. Um, you just got to remember to open them up at least once a week if you don't have a tiny little vent on it. Um, because they do get choked out real easily. A week's about max for that. How many, I mean, obviously I don't expect you to physically count them, but how many springtails per culture do you get at, at a max? And let me, let me kind of, uh, let me kind of just put this into context. I've got about five cultures going right now that are relatively small, a couple of like shoebox sized Tupperware containers. I've got a couple of small jars and they never, they never overproduce to the point where they can't fit in that container. You know what I mean? So I don't open it up and see like billions of them. Like what's the situation like with you? Is it the same thing? They boom, but they don't like go crazy. Like a fruit fly culture in my experience. Um, they definitely get pretty dense and heavy populated and they can like kill themselves like fruit fly cultures where there's too many of them and they, they use up all their air. If that makes sense. So yeah, I was always just curious because mine will only kind of boom to a certain point and then they don't, exceed that meaning like let's just say it maxes out at i don't know arbitrary number say a thousand springtails it will never go over that it's not like i'll open it up and there'll be ten thousand what's your experience with like the the boom and bust cycle with those so mine they kind of get to like a carrying capacity where like kind of like where you said where they don't make any more and and then if they do make too much they'll they'll all die off whether they burn off the oxygen in there and there's a co2 from the food or something that happens in there. Um, like if you put too much food or whatever, it can kill them off when there's a bunch of them in there and stuff. Um, but I, they're not, it's more stable than fruit flies in my experience. I have more of an issue with fruit flies um, staying stable than I do my springtails. I'm not sure if that's because the springtails are closer to the ground and more stable and cool. And then my uh, fly cultures are on a, just a, like an actual shelf. Um, so they can, the temperature wax and wanes a little more night and day when the sun hits and stuff like that, 
or seasonally when the humidity changes because we go from near 75 percent humidity um to to bone dry to where your hands crack and bleed when it gets dry in the winter and right now when it's windy out um so like right now my cultures dry out really fast and i gotta mist them sometimes or or make them soupy to get them to go right and then in the summer i gotta make them almost dry and they do get soupy still um my springtail cultures are way more consistent the clay is a better medium than the fly mashed potatoes if that makes sense because that's what i use um and just the the way you harvest them i can kind of like grab the springtail culture and just knock it on the glass inside the tank and dump out 90 percent of them and then it's kind of reset from there you just toss a little bit of food back in and you let it sit for a couple weeks before you feed from it again I was going to ask what your rebound time is, because me, it seems like if I really, if I take one culture, and again, these, this isn't a huge culture, say I dump the same thing, you about 90% of the springtails in, it takes like a good two months or more before I have that culture back as it was before. It's upwards of six to eight weeks um, just to get like a heavy population again. Yeah, because I see pictures online of people with their springtail cultures, and it's just it looks like a bowl of rice. It, that's how, yes, that's yep, how yep. Con- condensed it is. And I just, some of mine get like that too, but, but not always. Um, generally with fresh clay, it's more likely. Um, and then occasionally after I dump them out, I do stir up the clay or replace it. If it smells fouled as well. You know what I've been kind of supplementing them with as well is believe it or not, hermit crab food. Really? Yeah. I, I use uh, like tropical flaked fish food occasionally too. That I didn't have a lot of res- I I put that in and they would kind of just pick at it and then it would kind of mold over. But the, the funny thing is it would mold over and they wouldn't eat the mold. This I had some no name hermit crab food because I I still have a hermit crab. I've I've had that thing forever now. And um, I thought to myself, well, let me just just out of curiosity, let me just see. There's some good stuff in here. There's there's calcium. There's some you know maybe some maybe some kind of mold to grow off of it. And they just went ham on it. It was like they just knocked the whole thing out like overnight, which was surprising because the yeast formula that I usually give them, they'll, they'll pick on that for a few days, maybe even a week. The, the hermit crab food was gone like ASAP. Really? Yeah. I don't know if that's an appropriate diet for them or not, but they ate it. I'll have to try it. I have some hermit crab food. Uh, I feed some to the coconut crabs occasionally. My only concern would be if, if I put in too much, if it did spoil, and then since the vent, you know, since the, the lid is on, there's no ventilation. That would be my only yep. concern. So I, if anybody's listening, don't dump the whole thing in. Just maybe a little pinch. <laughs> yes. Always, always be delicate when testing out new foods with cultures. Yeah. So you don't, yeah. don't want to get yourself into a predicament. Yeah. I don't know if, if it was what it was, but it was gone. They ate it within like a day. And I mean, it wasn't a tremendous amount, but it was about on par with what I would normally put in with the usual media. Oh, I also, um, with the purple toads, um, because I wasn't sure if they were ever going to like actually get their purple color or anything like that. Um, I did feed the springtails, the purple care, the, the red carotenoid, the natural rose from Tinkman herps is what I get. Um, I did mix that into the brewer's yeast 50, 50 and fed that to them. Um, that was a big thing I did for the purple lopus. Um, I don't know if it had an effect or not. I would say no. Um, because my, what I would call my control group, I just kind of fed them normal springtails and no extra carotenoids. They turned just as purple as the others. 
So it's hard to tell. I mean, if, as far as I know, there's only been research with Pamelio. I had a, I had an, I did an episode a while back. I don't know if anybody else listened and didn't didn't catch it, but um, I had the author of one of the papers on discussing the effects of carotenoid supplements and reproductive success in Unifaga pamilio. And it was it was really cool, but pamilio is just so different from so many of the other species in terms of behavior and obviously they're obligate egg eaters and whatnot. And there was a definite correlation there. But I know a lot of people have been using carotenoid supplements for a whole other host of species. I mean, I've been using them with a couple of frogs just to see if I could boost some red coloration. I haven't noticed a dramatic difference in coloration, but again, I don't know how they metabolize that or it's, it's, it's hard to tell, but, um, I mean, if you didn't see any differences with the, the, um, the, the purple atelopus, I don't know. I don't know if it necessarily translates into bright color the way that some of the products claim it does. I don't know. I'm just, yeah. And it could just be their biology too. It just may not rely on the bioaccumulation of carotenoids like other species do. Yeah, that's, that's very true. That was kind of what i kind of what i figured but i i, I just assumed Something it couldn't else, hurt um that people might find helpful or interesting or whatnot too um vitamin a i do not use vitamin a very often with the adelopus um they don't lay a lot of like they lay a lot of eggs at once but they don't lay a lot of eggs throughout the year if that makes sense um whereas our dart frogs um our ufaga our dendrobates and phyllobates they lay eggs all the time the ufaga lay hundreds of eggs between laying eggs to raise up to tadpoles and feeding those tadpoles. Um, that's, it's a lot of eggs. So it's a lot of vitamins that are being used and minerals and resources from their body compared to the toads. Um, so I've always just been wary of overdosing them more so or causing issue or damage and stuff like that. Having too much vitamin A. Um, I use it like every other month instead of like, uh, every couple of weeks or once a month or something as maintenance. I just do it like, oh, like half of that, like a lot less, if that makes sense. Um, and then I do come breeding season. Um, I do make sure I use it before I put them into uh, the spawn chamber as well. What about the green salamanders? Are you using any special supplements for them? Um, just like the Adelopis every other month, um, they get the, the vitamin A. Otherwise they get Dendrocare as a regular supplement and uh, uh, a calcium with d3 since they do not get uvb and how long does it take for the the, the juveniles to reach adult size like in your care i know that you got some adults and it took them a while but how long does it take a like a freshly hatched one to reach adult size the ones i got were actually juveniles they were not adults yet they were unsexed um, so i got four unsexed and i ended up with 1.3 so with the juveniles, last year babies, I have not had any mature to show sexual dimorphism yet. Um, the males do get like a little bit more of a muscular um, head. I would call it like kind of like how a pit bull has a real blocky head versus a Labrador, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. So the females are a little bit more slender headed and the males are a little bit more blocky headed. I've got a good picture out there that shows the comparison between the two of them. Um, but there's a little bit of difference in the patterns that I see between my females. My females all have like a wide reticulated pattern and they've got clear, like not banding, but like their dark patch stripe thingies, like their little lightning strikes essentially. And then the males are more like specked or gold flaked, if that makes sense. They've got less of that 
wide reticulated pattern. So I don't know if they're sexually dimorphic or not. That's just something I noticed in my population, um, or at least with my adults. Now, last year's babies, there's two or three of them that look like the male, and there's five or six that look like the female. Um, that's all I have with me right now. I've probably just got like an under of last year's babies still. I did send out a bunch of them. Um, but this year I've got between 25 and 30. Um, 25 was the most I counted from the egg mass, but I could tell there was a couple behind the other eggs. I just couldn't tell how many. As far as the male goes, I noticed that certain species have, and I really wish I could remember the anatomical term for it, but uh, males develop these two little nodules at the end of their nose when they want to reproduce. Have you noticed that in them at all? I, I don't know if that's something that that species has or not. I have not noticed that. Um, but I will start paying attention to it because I know what you're talking about. A lot of the Boatly glossa have it. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That might have been where I saw the photograph. Something that I'm also going to look for next year is under their chin. Um, a lot of the um, West Coast salamanders get what's called a mental gland. The males use it to deposit hormones on the female's back. So they rub their chin across the backs. Um, I've seen these guys running along, like the male chasing female and like putting his head on her back. But I didn't disturb them or anything like that. Um, I just let them be, if that makes sense. <laughs> so I will look next year if they do it again. Caudate reproduction is really, really cool. It, it's just like frogs go into amplexus, which is, it's boring. <laughs> if you watch some of the behaviors that caudates engage in when they reproduce, it's it's really cool. Like, it's know, very cool. Yeah, like certain aquatic newts, they'll kind of do this like tail dance and... Um, there's this whole elaborate dance that some ter like terrestrial, like plethodoid, um, salamanders do. It's, it's pretty wild. Yeah. Yeah. Hormones, courtship and grabbing and grasping mating behaviors. It's, it's wild. Amphibians are all over the place. Mammals, some mammals are kind of out there, but most are cut and dry. There's a motion, some action and a mess. That is about it. Even amplexus, there's a whole bunch of different types of amplexus. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Dozens, like backwards, forward, gluing to each other, armpit grasping, arm grasping, waist grasping, all kinds of stuff, butt to butt even. Yeah, I'm looking at the chart now, and there's at least there's at least seven different types on this chart. But yeah, a bunch. Maybe not dozens, but there's a bunch. And it's, little, it's subtle things either, even like where the, the front appendage placement would be, whether it's over the shoulders of the, the first frog or under the shoulders. And it's, 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 you're right. I mean, I'm looking at the, exam, look, I, I don't know if it's a, if it's a rain frog. I mean, that's the kind of the way it's drawn here, but the male is tiny and literally just suction types. cups to the back. Yes. Yep. Those are going to be one of my next uh, goals to set my eyes on are some of the rain frog species. I know they're really big in Asia. They never really seem to have, caught on here or just i don't know if they're no, just not here yet we get a lot of like uh wild caught imports from them from like mozambique and stuff like that we used to get a real cool species from madagascar but we haven't got it in, in for forever i know that they have a kind of a similar to pixie frogs i think that they're inactive and they're un underground for like i think like 11 yep. months out of yep. the year or something like that and they're only active for about a month yeah they go dormant they have a hot dry environment i think some of them are obligate termite eaters as well 
I believe so. Something that I'm also excited for down here. Um, we're in one of the hominoptera capitals of the world. Um, down here in South Texas, we've got countless species of native ants and termites um, that live down here. The, we've even got the little thorny lizards that are in peril because of fire ants down here. So I, I want to work with some ant-eating species. I do keep the uh, eastern narrowmouth toads. Um, I had someone on Facebook contact me, um, a real well-known green tree python and arboreal snake breeder. He actually found a leucistic narrowmouth toad in his yard. Um, so it was super cool. He was able to collect it legally. He had the fishing license and everything like that. You need to collect small little animals. Um, and he was able to send it to me. So one of these days, I'm going to try to breed them too. So for now, it's just maintaining them. I've not really seen anybody keep them. I've seen them used as feeders, but that's about it. I've seen that picture on your Instagram. It's it's a really beautiful looking frog. It's uh, yeah, it's, he, he's kind of like he glows. He's stark white. Yeah, and it's it's shaped kind of like a little like a little cone almost. They're they're they really are narrow mouth. You mentioned before about Bolitoglossa. Are you, are you working with them at all, or do you have any plans? I do on have it? a couple species of Bolitoglossa. Yes. Okay. How um, are you keeping them? I actually keep them similar to a dart frog tank. I just let it dry out a little bit more. Um, I kind of wait until the leaf litter gets a little bit crispy between the heavy mistings. Um, so one of the species I have is from the Yucatan Peninsula. Um, so that gets extremely hot and pretty hostile and dry for a portion of the year. Um, and they were just like reptile show pickups. They get imported every now and then. This last year, um, a bunch of Boatly Glossa, I think it's called Dolphinii. Dolphini. I don't know how to say that word either. Um, but a bunch of those got imported. So I've got a group of those right now, too. Um, so presumed they're all wild caught um, or field collected is what they call it. Um, when they're brought into the United States. So I've treated all of them as being wild-caught animals, um, even though they came from reptile shows, um, just as preventative, because I have so many captive bred animals, I don't want to introduce something. So I do quarantine them in a separate part of my house. I've got a whole other room, um, like my bedroom, my closet, actually, I use for that. Um, and then I just, I worm them for the start, and then I just send one of the little swabs off to the labs. And then if it's negative, it's negative. If it's positive, I've never had a positive yet. Um, thankfully, knock on wood. Um, but when that time comes, I won't say it will never happen because you never know. Um, me and my veterinarian will come up with a plan of action. So, And until then, I'm just doing the quarantine and worming and swabbing with new acquisitions, especially wild cots. Um, I am a little bit laxed. Um, I have gotten other animals from accredited zoos um, or other large public zoos, uh, and they have sent them to me pre-screened. Um, those animals I have just assimilated to my collection. I probably should not do that, um, and I'm most likely not going to anymore now that I have the separate room to do it. Um, but before it was just kind of like in my living room, I'd have a little rack set up, but thankfully now we're able to do a little bit more separation and actually having a facility. So what's your preference for deworming? Panicure. Do you use the powdered form or how do you, how are you, how are you using it? Yep, I use the granules. I grind it up even finer um, with a mortar and pestle. I always wear 
a face mask when I do it too, because it's like pretty aerosolized. Um, I don't want to be breathing that in. Um, my dad used a sandblaster when I was growing up, so I'm real cautious about inhaling powders and debris and stuff like that. There's a lot of simple things that can really mess you up. Um, even food grade stuff you inhale can bother you real bad. Yeah, like with diametaceous earth. I, I know that diametaceous earth is is it's listed as food grade, but I mean o- OSHA technically lists it's got silica in it, so OSHA technically lists that as a material that you're going to want to use some sort of a respirator with. So, I mean, me personally, I would I I mean I use it for for natural pest control because it's basically like shredded up diatoms, which are these like prehistoric little sea creatures, and it's basically like it's like ground up razor blades. It's <laughs> that's why it kills bugs. Yep. Now with the panicure, do you have a, a protocol that you follow or like, like I should say a regiment more? Do you do like once, twice, three times? Um, so all varies. Um, I do contact my vet anytime I do anything larger than like a little dart frog, if that makes sense. Um, for the small dart frogs, um, I do like a, a two month quarantine for the worming aspect. And it's the first week they get fed, dusted flies with the wormer. They get two weeks of normal feeding and then a, the third week. And I do that four cycles. What kind of results do you see? I mean, have you had animals come in that were visibly in bad condition and they came around? So this year, um, I actually had someone give me an entire import of wild caught mantellas um, because they were real skinny. They had got stuck in shipment and transit a little longer than the people were comfortable with. So instead of just selling them to everybody, they just gave them to me. Um, and some of them were like rail thin, like they just like their spines were as thick as their arms were like paper thin. Um, and I assumed it was just sitting for so long and not catching weight back up properly in combination of being wild caught and having potential parasites. Um, I didn't even do fecals on them right away. I immediately just started treating as prevention for them. Um, so I didn't even get to see if they had parasites or not. Um, but my last fecal that I had come back was negative for them. Have you ever used uh, ivermectin at all? I have not for my amphibians yet, but I do use it for um, my mammals, for some mammals. I don't. I haven't used it for my amphibians. I've not even really asked my vet about it or anything. Um, but I know some mammals are real sensitive to it, and you can't use it for certain things like porcupines and stuff like that because they're hind gut fermenters and stuff like that. So I just didn't want to risk it, and I was just using something that I knew zoos already used and everything already. Yeah, I'm always just curious about different people's preferences and what what seems to work and what doesn't. Uh... I don't know. It's just one of those things for, for the fecals. How, do you have like a, do you get fecals regularly on your collection or you just do it with new acquisitions? Well, I do the room once a year where I'll go through and pull poop from like each individual tank or something like that. Even if there's like a group of animals in it, I won't get a poop from each individual animal. I'll do it like as a group tank, if that makes sense. Cause they're all coming into contact with each other anyways and having waste and stuff like that. Um, and I'll go through and I'll do that. And then any new acquisitions, um, but if I if I see something a little thin or something like that, um, I'll if it needs a weight, I'll get a weight done on it, or I'll just do a, a round of worming on it just as a preventative. And I've never really had a big issue with anything. Um, trying to think, the mantellas were probably the worst issue I've ever had with animals being real thin and stuff like that from presumed parasites. How long did it take them to come around again? 
Um, I would say they're still coming back around. They got imported like January 1st. So I think what happened was they like, they were supposed to come in before Christmas and then they like got caught up in the holiday thing. It's not a good time to ship animals domestically, let alone internationally. Um, but the quotas for those countries, when it's available, it's available and that people don't want to miss out and stuff like that. So things get risky and stuff like that at the state regu- at the, um, with a stake of the animal sometimes, unfortunately. Um, so there's there's two of them that are a little bit thin still, but there's a, a dozen of them that have plumped right back up. Were there any did, did you, were there any losses? Did you have any that didn't make it? I did lose one. Um, and when they came to me, there was a big ball of sphagnum moss, um, and it kind of like the container. You could tell it moved around a little bit, so the cont- the ball of moss in it had like formed a ball. Uh, and there was one stuck in that. That one was a little lethargic and never recovered. But for the most part, the the other fourteen of them are solid. That's a pretty good. That's that's a pretty good ratio. I mean, if you only lost one out of all those, that's uh, that's Especially pretty encouraging. Thin like that, so they must have been really healthy when they were collected. Uh, it seems to be. It's it's funny because you look at wild caught animals. And I just, I mean, I've, I've talked about this before, but years ago in, in the 90s and 80s and whatnot, I mean, things came in, they look they looked terrible. And you have to wonder how many of them actually made it in alive as opposed to how many just ended up in a, in a dumpster somewhere because they didn't make it. I mean, I've seen animals come in a terrible condition. Touching back to the Adelopis, um, some of the old price lists from like the 60s, 70s, and 80s, um, like 30,000 Adelopis, wild caught from like Peru and stuff like that, brought to Europe and the USA and stuff like that in like single shipments. Like the density of those animals that used to be before Kitrin hit and stuff like that and before those population declines was insane. All of them, all of them probably perished pretty quickly, especially those montane species that need real cool, clean environments. Yeah, I know that with Ufaga Lamani, there was something like 81,000 of them, which, I mean, it seems like a huge number, but, I mean, there's there's other species that are imported by, like, the millions, but, I mean, can you, I mean that wasn't in one shipment, but could you imagine all those, like, the just the biomass of all that stuff moving between country and country? Yeah. Well, while we're talking about moving things, I want to get your opinion on this, because you, you run a zoo. The America Competes Act with late with, okay you, you, i'm gonna let you run with it you you tell me how it's going to affect you in the zoo so i i think a lot of people are way more scared of it um than than actually need to be it is a scary situation it is a, a ban type situation um but it's not like a an, an outright ban you're not gonna lose the ability to do all these things with your animals and stuff like that um there's just the much higher of a chance that specific species will be listed and be harder to do things with, um, especially between states. The interstate commerce thing is what will hit so hard. Um, It happened once with salamanders and big snakes. um, And USART, the United States Association of Reptile Keepers, I believe I got that right. I might have said that wrong. Really bad with those acronyms. Um, They put an injunction in and sued back at the government for overreach, saying it was overreach exactly that it's not their right to take away our right to do our domestic sales of our captive bred animals that we're producing domestically here um 
the small number that are lauded in and stuff like that, that's what the Lacey Act is for. Those animals are would be considered lauded in and illegal. So the progeny from them would be illegal as well. Um, so essentially, the situation is already covered. Um, it's just going to be what could be considered potentially invasive is what would be now being able to be listed. And the way it would be going about being listed. Um, there still will be a public commentary period and stuff like that. You cannot add, there's no way you can get rid of that. That's just part of the judicial system. Um, but they can emergency list things and cause a halt on things um, before that happens, if that makes sense. So they can kind of block it before it becomes law um, temporarily, like a, a moratorium situation. That was the thing that bothered me most was the the lack of public comment because you can't yeah yep. you you can't just i mean even just from an ethical perspective you you can't you can't have like backroom de- and i mean backroom dealings but you can't have well, backroom dealings where you just decide xyz without informing the public or getting any kind of any kind of input especially from the industry that's going to affect the most yep so i can't remember if i posted it or if my significant other did I think I only shared that on my story. I don't think I actually made a post about it on my my page page, but my significant other did. Um, one of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife employees that works with endangered species in the United States, um, he just happens to be a frogger himself, too. He keeps ufaga and a couple other things. Um, he gave a good outline of what it would be if it does happen to pass um, on, on my, I think it's my significant other's page. Um, I'll send you that as well if you want to get a briefing of it on if it passes, that's how it will work. Um, he's literally one of the people that would exactly know he's U.S. Fish and Wildlife Endangered Species. Um, so I take what he has to say um, over um, what Uzark would have to say, even though they have a lot of lawyers doing that stuff um, because he is a Fish and Wildlife employee. Um, Uzark is going to use a lot of scare tactics. They do need to, though, um, to get the the masses and the awareness out there. Um, just talking about it freely isn't going to be doing anything. You've got to get people to take action. People need to write letters. People need to call. People need to email. Um, you've got to get the attention out there or it's just going to happen like a landslide. Um, the salamander thing, the amphibian thing, I have a feeling that that was going to happen regardless, um, but barely anybody spoke up on it. There was just a few people, hardly any big names or anything like that, that jumped on that. Um, I don't think Uzark really did much about it at all either. I think it just kind of happened to benefit because they did it for the large constrictors and stuff like that. Um, so I think that it was just kind of like, in conjunction of being overreach and an interstate commerce ban that it was just included to it being tied to the Lacey Act. But it would it would affect accredited zoos, private zoos, pet owners, um, labs, everything. It would affect everybody. Tell me from from the zoo angle, because that's what I'm really curious about is, I mean, I'm, I'm a hobbyist. I, I understand how it would affect me. I understand how it would affect vendors, but how would it affect you as a, as an operator of a zoo it would create an entire new chain of paperwork and inspections and dealing with to do the interstate commerce with those species let alone the international commerce with those species 
Um, so it literally just makes it incredibly difficult because you have to deal with the government and they're already incredibly slow. They don't communicate between branches well at all. And you're going to have to be dealing with fish and wildlife. You're going to have to be dealing with USDA, depending on what species you have and where it's regulated at now. So it, it literally just makes it incredibly hard. Um, even harder for pet owners and stuff like that. It would literally be seemingly impossible. Um, you'd have to like not incorporate if that makes sense but you'd have to almost be a facility like structured place to meet the requirements someone with a casual pet would not meet the requirements it'd be almost impossible when you say meet the requirements um can you elaborate a little bit more i'm, I'm... injurious species um the requirements are like a double containment as well as provisions from your veterinarian um, for disease controls. So like rabies vector species and stuff like that. Um, a lot of animals, for example, the tanuki, raccoon dogs, um, flying foxes and things like that already on um, prairie dogs, not prairie dogs, right? Meerkats, there we go, meerkats. Um, they all have diseases. So you got to deal with the CDC. Um, you got to deal with US Fish and Wildlife because they're on an injurious list. There's just so many aspects to it, as well as dealing with your regulation agency for the Animal Welfare Act for housing them. So their habitat needs to have double containments. You got to prevent wild animals coming into access with them so that they can't accidentally get rabies, vice versa. Um, whereas, for example, my capuchin, she can catch a bird. She catches frogs and toads. She catches garden snakes, things like that. You have to prevent that with those injurious species. Um, because you don't want them to get out. They can potentially breed with something through the cage. That's like a literal thing, songbirds and stuff like that, people that keep them. Um, birds can hybridize with their birds through their cages. Okay, I see what you mean. It's kind of like, um, almost almost like, like biosecurity for a different yeah, species. Yeah, it's got to be way more secure. And that would affect... So realistically, anything that, was, anything that would be labeled as injurious, it wouldn't be in anyone's best interest to work with it privately anymore because it would call it would be so cost prohibitive right correct and imagine if they like for example what if they listed ball pythons and leopard geckos as injurious we all know you can't survive out of like maybe where i'm at extreme south texas extreme south florida and southern or many parts of cali um but you know even just north texas it freezes we get we got snow up there Nothing's going to survive the winters there, but being listed as injurious, all 50 states, that regulation holds. Yeah. For anybody out there who, who isn't already aware, this, this would essentially federalize, meaning it would become a national thing as opposed to a state by state thing. So many states have their own laws regarding what you can and can't keep, transport, et cetera, species listed injurious. The state of Florida is a good example. But let's just say for argument's sake, under this legislation, it, say a species is listed as injurious in Florida, that means it's listed as injurious everywhere, even in places like Alaska or Washington State or Maine, where it could not survive. If it's injurious anywhere, it's injurious everywhere. Yep. And something that makes it even scarier for frog hobbyists, specifically with dart frogs, one of our states already has an introduced stable breeding population of dart frogs. And it's not because private owners either. It was actually the government in Hawaii that introduced the Aratus green and black dart frogs um, to eat bugs and mosquitoes and stuff like that. Gotta love the government. Right? So there's literally 
already one of our species that we keep introduced in the USA that they could use the science of saying all y'all's pets could do the same thing elsewhere. We don't want that to happen. So we're going to list them as injurious. Yeah, it's interesting how so many of the the worst the worst invasive species issues with especially with amphibians have been a government issue. The, the cane toad, for example, is a prime example, and dendrobates yeah. uh, are We actually Hawaii. have a, a native cane toad here in Texas, and even a lot of people down here think they're introduced, and they're like, "That's the the Australian South American cane toad," and it's actually that's the South Texas one. That's native. That's supposed to be here. Yeah, I was talking about Australia. Yep, yep. Yeah, uh, and then they introduced they introduced rabbits and they introduced fox and and it was <laughs> Australia is a whole other. So here's something that I've not seen anybody point out as well. Um, Australia, they have a flourishing reptile trade with their native species. The law that they're wanting to pass, the Competes Act, would kind of turn us into Australia. Um, it would not be likely that our native species would be listed as injurious because they're native to our United States. It wouldn't make sense um, unless you could, you know, list them as injurious in individual states. But then that's not the Competes Act federal anymore. That's a whole different ball and basket or whatever you basket eggs, whatever you want to call it. Um, but so it's not going to ruin everything if it does pass. We will still have a flourishing trade. We could be like Australia and just use our native animals. Yeah, I've had conversations with with a couple. I had I had Dean Jansen on from from VivTech, and he lives in Australia, and he was telling me about the whole process where they're allowed to keep uh, a certain a certain I think it's a certain number and a certain number of species of of natives, but there's also I guess it's kind of like the way you get a fishing license here. You basically have to file for a license over a certain age, and prove to whatever whoever it is that you're you're keeping it well you have to keep records of if, if it died if it escaped anything like that and i think at any point i guess uh, the, the government entity that monitors that i think they can technically come into your home and, and i guess investigate and make sure that your husbandry is the way it should but uh, i know that anyone I've, I've spoken to from australia i know they generally kind of like look at the u.s and think like wow like you guys have got everything over here because yeah it's like it, the wild wild west yeah it, it is literally the wild west here i mean there's plenty of species that we could keep here but i don't know i just i would i would really really miss dark frogs it would rock the world and change herpticulture or whatever you want to call it across the united states drastically and i would say devastatingly honestly um, but it wouldn't end it if that makes sense. So I always try to think of whatever little bright side you could think of. Yeah. What's that word? Everyone likes to use reimagine. <laughs> yeah. Past laugh, full, past laugh full versus past glass half empty. Sorry. My dyslexia is killing me right now. Yeah. Um, some people say the glass is half empty. It's half full. I just say that the whole glass just spilled and everything, <laughs> everything is it's destroyed. Me- Hot here in South Texas. I'm always thirsty. <laughs> so I'm just curious about. Um, I mean, we're kind of winding out, to, winding down to the end. But um, I mean, we talked about the green salamander. We talked about the zoo. We talked about um, the the legislation. I'm just curious, as as a personal note, with um, you know, a lot of this legislation creeps in, and there's 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 an agenda behind it. 
what do you say to people that are critical of of zoological organizations? Because I've I've believe it or not, I've actually seen quite of a quite a bit of a pushback against people who operate zoos that do so much. Do, do you have any thoughts on that at all? A lot of it is just being miseducated. I wouldn't even say it's being uneducated. It's just following the wrong information. And a lot of it is animal rights driven, um, responsible animal keeping and information. There's none of it. Like besides researching individual animals and how to keep them and stuff, there's nothing out there like how the radicals and animal rights activists put out how bad we are. We're not talking about how good we are, if that makes sense. So people are only seeing how bad we are, or I should say, public facilities are, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I always feel like it must be so frustrating to be a part of, I mean, in your case, it's it's the zoo community and to have one entity set the example for everybody. And it's like, if you do a hundred things right and one thing wrong, it's that one thing that's going to get everybody's attention. Exactly. For me this year and last year, it's been Tiger King. Yeah, that's a whole other... <laughs> so, I grew up in Oklahoma. I'm a gay man. Um, I knew Joe. Um, in high school, I actually worked at his park. Um, he kind of offered it to anybody. If you wanted to work with animals and you would deal with hard hours and shoveling shit all damn day and deal with being yelled at, anybody could go work there. You didn't really have to deal with Joe. It wasn't really like the movie or anything like that. Um, or the show, but literally all I hear is how horrible of a person he was, how horrible of a person Carol is. In my mind, they both had their issues. They both did good things. They both did horrible things. So Joe clearly cared about his animals in the beginning. He clearly went a little AWOL in the end. And Carol clearly the same way too. She used to sell pet bobcats. She's had a reform and change, and now she believes cats shouldn't be pets at all. That's perfectly okay for her. that to be her agenda. And Joe, I didn't quite agree with his cat mill style breeding and trying to make the saber-toothed tiger and all that and the whole hybrids and stuff like that just because of similar to the, the dart frog mindset. Um, we want to keep what's wild accurate and how it is wild. Um, hybrids are man-made and they're not really in the wild anywhere with the exception of a few. So that's literally all I've been hearing out. My family talks about it all the time. I literally probably got a thousand messages. Um, people I went to high school with that I haven't talked to in 10 years um, would be like, oh my God, did you really work there and stuff like that? And just or like, did you really know him? Do you know Joe? Are you going to get a tiger? You can grow a mullet. All these things. When I saw that documentary, I it was right here and around that time in New York. The, everything was closed because of the COVID restrictions, and this was it was it came on, and I remember watching it and thinking, "Wow, this is going to be pretty interesting." And then I, I I watched it, and it was it was an incredible documentary, but. The thing that really got me the most was at the end of it, I thought to myself, and I'm sorry, I'm going to curse you, but shit, you know what right? I mean? I was like, yep. shit, exactly. this is going to really, this is going to be a big problem 
for anyone at all who works with animals, regardless of what capacity, this is going to really, really draw a lot of attention to things that really don't need attention brought to them because many things are, are on the level and legit. And something that a lot of people don't think about either, like those people were kind of literally just doing whatever they wanted, regardless of regulation or advice from veterinarian or anything. And that's kind of why it was so hot seat and such a, a big public attention getter, if that makes sense, because it was such a blatant disregard for both law and regulation and animals. Yeah, it was it was uh, I mean, I had never I I knew that that world existed, not from personal experience, but I've 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 been around exotics keepers a long time. So I kind of have an idea what goes on and what doesn't. But I just yeah. I just kept thinking, you know, there's so many people out there who work really, really hard to work with animals. And this is just going to completely obliterate all that positive work just by turning it into a complete spectacle. And I remember when you and I first when you and I first had our conversation like like two years ago, I, I, I remember we, we you and I kind of talked in private about it a little bit, but I, yeah. I, I figured it would kind of hopefully just come and go, but it, it just kind of seems to be lingering and lingering. Yeah. It stuck. Does that affect, I mean, when people come to Fragile Planet Wildlife Park, does it, does it, does it follow them there? Fine. All the time about it. Just like, can you do what Joe Exotic did kind of situation and stuff like that? And it's like, no, you can't. Unfortunately, that's, that's why that situation happened and why people are in prison right now and, and stuff like that. Why animals got confiscated and. Yeah, it's it's out there. I mean, they they came for the cat people. Just leave us frog people be. I hope. <laughs> Although I don't see us, I don't I don't see us being able to accomplish the same the same heights as uh as the cat world. But hey, it it is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Nick, I want to thank you a lot for everything that you shared with us. And uh, it was really interesting hearing about the Adelopas and hearing about the green salamander. Is there any final thoughts that you want to leave us with before we wrap up tonight? Oh, I just wanted to make sure um, that if anybody had any other questions on anything that we missed any details on, or if they had any outside questions, feel free to reach out to me on Facebook or Instagram. Um, feel free. I'd love to chat. And you're on TikTok too, right? I am, yes. Okay. Indicator is there too. Very, very cool. All right, everyone. I want to thank Nick again. It's been a real insightful episode. We, we covered a lot of cool stuff. And uh, I know a lot of you guys have been asking to have Nick back on the show. I'm really glad that we got a chance to, uh, to talk tonight. So other than that, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Catch up with you again soon.